You're listening to a podcast by Church on the Move in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hey, wherever or however you're listening to this, our hope is that this message is encouraging, it's challenging, and it inspires you to take your next step with Jesus. Thanks for listening, and let's check it out. Well, I want to welcome you to this segment of The Money Gap, and we're talking this time about the Sixth Day Project. You know, years ago when I first began my professional life, one of the things I started noticing was that highly successful people, the people that I watched and knew who were key contributors in the church, that that their giving was hugely beneficial to the church. These are people that made good money. I noticed they all had a common characteristic. They were all six-day workers. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they worked all day on Saturday, but none of them seemed to be bound by a 40-day or 40-hour work week. They all seemed to be the kind of people who would do that little bit extra. And I, I began to think about the, the scriptures and what the Bible has to say about uh, the six days of work. And in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 9, six days shall you labor and do all your work. And of course, when we read this in the Bible, we see it's a restrictive thing. That's the way most of us take it. We're, we're to have a day of rest, which is a good thing. But what I began to see was it was not only telling us that we needed a day of rest, but at the same time that we had six full days to get done what we needed done. And a lot of people don't take that. You know, the five-day, 40-hour work week is a relatively new thing. Ask any farmer if this works for them. And I'm not suggesting that you have to go to work all day Saturday and give up your time off. I'm not suggesting that. But I want you to start thinking about a sixth-day project and how it might be done with time you already have. Our church heard me teach on this years ago, and our church is full of people who have developed these six-day projects, and they have profited from those things. Now, a six-day project is not two full-time jobs, and I don't believe in that. I, 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 people that work these 90-hour work weeks and are just putting the nose to the grindstone, I, I, I don't like to see that because I think you give up way too much when you think like that. But it ought to be a complement to what you do. It shouldn't fight what it is that you do. Now, I have had several six-day projects during my time uh, in my professional career. And some of my six-day projects turned into jobs that eventually completely replaced my old job. And then I had way more sixth-day projects that didn't replace my job. They just supplemented my job. So a six-day project doesn't necessarily have to take over. It may. But you must understand that just because you develop a six-day project doesn't mean that you begin to cut your boss short or your employer short. Um, you need to understand that that you have a, a first responsibility to that employer. And uh, I developed my first six-day project because my regular job began to go downhill, and I could see that it was going to fail, and it did. It ultimately failed. 
And it was what I was doing on the side that grew and eventually grew to enough that it paid for my bills. And it led to my own full-time ministry. How many, think about this, how many great organizations have you read about that came into existence because someone began to pursue a sixth-day passion, and that passion grew and grew and became more and more productive until it became uh, a great company. Six-day projects don't always look like great business opportunities, not in the beginning. And here's the reason why, because a six-day project should be something that you absolutely love doing. And most people who have them, they absolutely love it. It's an up arrow for them. That's why they're able to do it. It could be that your 40-hour-a-week job is either a down arrow for you or a neutral arrow at best, but but you do a six-day project, and it's something that you love, and it should be that. If you don't love it, then don't do it. Just to get into it because you have to and you have a gun to your back, uh, that doesn't make it a good thing. But a six-day project ought to be something that feeds you, that revs you up, and um, and helps you. I'll give you some examples. My wife did this, and we didn't do it on purpose, but we began to see after a while how this was a real moneymaker for us. She learned how to decorate, and we got the ideas from an older woman in our church who was a farmer's wife who took everyday things and she used them to decorate around the house. The first thing that my wife did is she went down to the thrift store and bought a whole box full of little baskets And when I came home from work one night, there was a whole wall in our dining room that was covered up with these little baskets. Well, she got that idea from this farmer's wife, and uh, it wasn't the greatest. We don't have those baskets anymore, but but it was something that had a special little touch. Well, when we sold that house after living in it for uh, 11 months, we got a contract within a week. And I have to believe it was because of my wife's decorating skills. She did an amazing job. And we made $3,000 off that little house. We paid $14,000 for that house. And we cleared $3,000 on it uh, when we sold it after 11 months. And and so essentially what my wife did is that little part-time job that she had decorating around our house eventually paid us when we sold the house. We carried that same idea into our next house once we moved to Tulsa. We lived in that house for a year, and uh, we worked on it, and, and we purposely chose the house because it needed work. You know, because it needed work, it was priced lower than other houses of the same square footage. So it had the potential to increase in value. So we took it over and we ripped up all the carpet, which was dry rotted. We redid the house one room at a time. Uh, I remember going to workshops on how to do wallpaper. And I sat with my wife in those workshops and was bored out of my mind. But, but you know, I believed in it. And uh, so she came home and, and put it all to work, and we painted, and we wallpapered, and we put down new carpet, we redid the kitchen, and, uh, and what happened was we sold it one year later for $10,000 more than what we paid for that house. 
So that's when we got the payback. We didn't get the payback every week when we were doing the changes. We got the payback at the end when we sold it. And by the way, we sold that house within a week. We put it on the market and there it was. Next house we go to, we do the same thing. Now, this was a new house, but we bought it raw. We said, let us put the finishes in. So we did. We lived in it for a year and sold it and made $12,000. Then we get another house. We live in it for two and a half years, and when we sold it, we made $54,000. Now, what we did was we put just a little bit of time in every week, working on this, working on that. And, you know, and if we didn't want to work, we didn't, we, we didn't work. We just did it as we could. But the things that we put into the house made it more attractive, and it helped us to sell the house for a hefty profit after a couple of years. So we learned about six-day projects with our houses, and it was something that we enjoyed. I mean, uh, I really did learn to enjoy working around the house, fixing things up, helping my wife get things done. She thoroughly enjoyed it, and we have carried that habit with us to this day. Now, here is a defining rule for a six-day project. Don't try to give birth to a fully grown child. You know, people ask me all the time, how do you keep from getting in trouble? You, you give birth to babies. You see, you can have a baby in your home and it doesn't run you out of your home, but if you had a full-grown adult where you had a new project that demanded as much from you as your regular job, it demanded all of your time and attention. Now, all of a sudden, you do not have the hours to put into that job to do it right, and it becomes a burden to you. It becomes a conflict. You're divided. But a baby doesn't take away from the relationship. Some might argue this, but a baby well, is a natural way to increase, and that's what you do with a six-day project. You have a natural increase. The baby works. You know, uh, I had a traveling ministry where I taught Sunday school teachers how to teach kids. And uh, I did a workshop on puppets. And at the end of every workshop, people came to me and said, how do you do puppets? Where do you get your puppets? Where do you buy puppets? And I was selling, uh, or not selling puppets, but I was steering people to puppet companies and I wasn't getting a penny in commission. Then one day I realized this might be a good six-day project. So we found some ladies in our church who could sew. And we developed some patterns and began to make a line of puppets that fit with the teaching that I was doing. And the next time I went out to a meeting and people asked me the question, where do you get your puppets? I said, right here. And we began to sell puppets. Now, it was never enough money to take over the ministry. But it was a tidy little business that blessed a lot of ladies who sewed for us, and it gave our ministry enough extra money at the time to really help us do what we needed to do. Eventually, it became something we couldn't sustain, and so we let the, the lady who was in charge of all the sewing, we let her and her husband take it, and they continued for many years to feed their family with that puppet business. So that six-day project was a great blessing for a long time to a lot of people. Now... A six-day project complements. It doesn't compete. And that's why it's so important that if you do have one of these, you make sure you take care of your job. You know, the, the, the church that I work for where my job began to go down, 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 one of the good things that the pastor did was he encouraged me to travel. 
But I was careful about that because I didn't want to abuse my time off and make the pastor wonder where my loyalties were. In fact, I did not really want to travel. I had to travel in the beginning because I had to offset the loss of revenue that was coming in my job. My paycheck at the church got smaller and smaller and smaller because the church was having some tough times. And so that six-day project of me going out and taking meetings grew, but it enabled me to learn how to travel full-time. And I, it took me a couple of years to figure out the processes of how to travel. I didn't know in the beginning how to structure my meetings, how to get best use to my time. I, in the beginning, I let churches dictate to me what they wanted me to do. And so I would go out and spend three, four, five days in a single church, which was way too long. And, and it was very inefficient because a lot of times these pastors would have me stay there for a whole 24 hours and I would only have one session, one, one time to teach in that 24 hours. And then I wait another 24 hours to do another time. It's woefully inefficient. And over time, we learned how to maximize our output with the least amount of time and everybody came out a winner. And so you cannot let other people define how you're going to do your six-day project. You have to define that. Because if you don't define it, it will run you in the ground. So when you do take on a six-day project like this, don't hide what you're doing. My son-in-law came to me with an uh, idea. And uh, he said, I want to build a house. And I thought, well, you've never built houses. You don't know anything about it. I haven't even seen you with a hammer. I don't know that you can build a house, but he had been studying. And I could tell as I listened to him talk, he knew what he was talking about. And he was the head of our shipping department. And there was an older man who worked under him in the shipping department whose wife and he built a house once a year. And it was a spec home. And it was a little side project that they did. And they did it before work in the mornings and after work in the evenings and made a few calls on the lunch break. And this six-day project made them a tidy little sum every year. In the beginning, they had to borrow the money for the materials to do the spec home. But after a while, they'd save their money. And now they were able to personally fund everything they built and, and they were growing their, their bankroll because of this six-day project. Well, my son-in-law convinced me that he could do this, and he had gone to the bank. The bank was already willing to give him a loan. He bought a lot in a neighborhood, and he had a guaranteed buyer because he had the construction loan in the beginning, and he built the house. It turned out great, and he moved into the home. He was the guaranteed buyer. And so that's the reason the bank loaned him the money. So in this process, he goes down and, and buys another lot and begins to build a second home. He has it on the market for less than a week because he had a, a very special way of building houses that people loved. He was really sensitive to what people were into. And he had two different people come to that house, and they began to fight over it. They, they wanted the house, and he went to them and said, listen, come look at this house. And he showed him his own home. And he closed selling both the spec house and his own home on the same day, moved into a condo, and started building loads of houses. Now, I watched to see how he was handling all of this. And one thing that I noticed, he got better working for us. He was more conscientious. He was very careful. He came up with great money-saving ideas for us all the time. So his six-day project didn't threaten 
what he was doing at his main job. And that's a hugely important principle. If you do a six-day project, you make sure it stays six day, that it doesn't take away from your job if you want your employer uh, to be happy with you. Now, eventually what happened is my son-in-law trained other people to take his place here at the church and he went out full-time building houses and he's won the parade of homes in Tulsa over and over again. And so God has blessed him greatly in this area. And here's this project that started as a six day and now it's his full-time gig and it employs him and other people besides. And so a six-day project ought to complement what you do and not fight it. Look for the blessing. And what I mean by this is that a lot of times people create a six-day project and they wind up creating a beast that says, feed me, feed me, feed me. And I'll give you a great case in point. Uh, A friend of mine uh, was uh, in ministry very similar to mine. And he had a children's ministry. He created product and had some great stuff. And, uh, and so he had watched me and he was a, a youth minister at a church, but he did some side meetings here and there. His pastor had given him permission to do that. And he sold his products mainly out of his garage and had a part-time person helping him. He, he didn't have a warehouse, didn't have a lot of expense. But what happened is he felt like he needed to take a step forward. So he went and leased office space. When he leased the office space, now he had to have full-time people in the office answering the phone, full-time person doing the shipping and all this stuff. And after several months of that, he came to me and he said, can I ask you something about your ministry? I said, sure. He said, do you make any money? I said, yeah, this is how I pay all these people. And we have to make money. If we don't make money, we go under. He said, well, you know, I used to make money. When I was doing everything out of my garage, he said, I didn't make a lot, but it was a nice little extra that we had every month. But he said, once I'd leased the building and hired the extra people and had all the utilities expense and so forth, he said, I started noticing I'm working myself to the bone, just keeping up with all of this. And at the end of the month, I make no money. That's what I call feeding the beast. You do not have time to feed the beast. God didn't call you to feed the beast. If it's just busy work that chews up a lot of your time and all of your money, that's not a good six-day project. And I've had a couple of those down through the years where I took a step back and said, you know what? All we're doing here is feeding the beast. And when you uh, have, uh, when you see yourself feeding the beast, it's time for you to offer an animal sacrifice. It's time for you to give it up, let her go, and go to something simpler. Now, a six-day project ought to be in your wheelhouse. You know, I told you earlier about um, the puppet thing that we did and how we made puppets to sell at our conventions, and and it was profitable to us, but it, it complemented what we were doing. That's what a six-day project ought to be. It ought to be something that is natural to you, that you know, that you have some familiarity with. Now, my son-in-law, when he came to me, I almost discouraged him from being a house builder because I didn't think it was something that was in his wheelhouse. But it was a hidden desire that he had, and he didn't actually come to me to talk about this until many, many months had passed 
and he had done research. He had done his homework. He didn't intend to be the guy swinging the hammer, running the saws. He was going to be the contractor. And he found out what steps you would take, and he studied contractors. He really made himself fully aware of the whole process, all the risks, the gambles. He did his research. It was in his wheelhouse, and it worked, and it was something that he enjoyed doing. So that's what you have to do. Do something that's in your wheelhouse. You know, in 1982, I realized it's time for me to do my kids' TV show. I had known for four years that we were going to do a kids' TV show. But when it actually came time, and this is one of the things I've learned about the leading of the Lord. When God's leading you to do something, the timing isn't right until you start getting details. When you start getting details, then you know, okay, we're getting close to the time. You know, when you're a little way off from what it is you're going to do, it's kind of hazy and you don't have all the particulars. But when it's time to actually pull the trigger, you start seeing things. And this is what I started seeing. I thought, you know, I know a lot about kids. I have a very successful in-person ministry with children. I have proven that. I can do big conventions with 1,500 kids and services and have no problems. But I started realizing that if I was going to be on TV in order for kids to be attracted to what we were doing, I had to develop a TV personality. Boy, and I started thinking, what am I going to be? I have to be something. I had a friend who was a pirate. And he had a a motorcycle wreck shortly after he got out of high school. And uh, he had an artificial leg and he had a hook on one arm. And and he was a perfect pirate, man. He looked the part too. And it was perfect for what he'd gone through. And uh, and Walt Disney offered him jobs three different times to come to Disney World uh, to be a pirate down there. He never took him up on it because he had a great ministry. But, But I knew I needed something like that. And I thought, you know, I'm from West Texas. I have an accent. The guy who's going to help me, who's going to be my sidekick in this TV show, he's got a a worse accent than I do. And I grew up in the rodeo business. I grew up around cowboys. The Old West is something I'm very much familiar with. I'm intrigued by it. I read about it all the time. I am going to be a cowboy. In fact, for for probably 11 years, or not, nine years. Nine years before I started my TV show calling it Gospel Bill, I had a character named Gospel Bill that I told stories about, and one day it just hit me, why don't you become Gospel Bill? And so I did, and it was a huge hit. And Gospel Bill became known all over America. A lot of people did not know that Gospel Bill was really Willie George. In fact, this is something funny that's happened dozens of times down through the years. We've had people come to Church on the Move, the church that I founded here in Tulsa, and they heard that the pastor was Willie George but didn't mean anything to them. And they would be sitting in the service and they would hear my voice. And they would say, oh my goodness, I've heard that voice before. And they would look up and they say, oh my goodness, it's Gospel Bill. They never realized that Willie George and Gospel Bill were one and the same. But I knew that in order to do what I needed to do on TV, 
I needed to have something that I was familiar with. And that's what your six-day project ought to be, something that's in your wheelhouse. That's why I didn't become a rocket scientist. That's not in my wheelhouse. I didn't become like a professor. That's not in my wheelhouse. I became what was natural and normal to me. And, And what it did is it allowed me to be authentic. You know, when when we got into doing gospel bill rallies, some of my advisors wanted me to wear fringe on my sleeves and all that. And I said, no can do, guys, can't do that. My dad was a professional rodeo cowboy. I grew up around those guys. They made fun of the movie cowboys with one exception. They made fun of all the guys who wore the fringe and had the gaudy uh, shirts and all of that stuff. Uh, and, and, and I grew up calling those people drugstore cowboys. That's how we thought about them. My dad had no respect for those guys, with one exception. There was one exception that he and all the other cowboys in the professional rodeo business, they all had great respect for Roy Rogers because they knew Roy was the real deal. And if you've ever watched any of Roy Rogers' movies, you know he was for sure a real cowboy. So they, they had no problem with him. But anybody else wearing that fringe, I couldn't do it. So I had to dress plain. I had to be authentic to myself. And so that's why you never saw Gospel Bill with really flashy clothes. David used his skill set, something that he was familiar with. He was a shepherd, and he became the shepherd of Israel. And what he did as a shepherd keeping his dad's sheep is how he beat Goliath on the battlefield. He brought something that was in his wheelhouse. You know, when you look at Moses, who became the leader of a nation and led the people like an army out of the land of Egypt, it was because Moses had been trained. Acts chapter 7 and verse 22 says that Moses, as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and in deeds. So Moses knew something about leadership. That's why God had to permit him to be raised by the Pharaoh's daughter so he would have a leader's mentality. The Hebrew slaves had a slave mentality, and God couldn't use any one of them to lead his people out. So he trained Moses as a general who knew how to give orders and how to lead people. And Moses was perfectly suited. Joseph was a food service manager, first in Potiphar's house, secondly in the prison. And these are skills that he brought with him into really the food management of the whole Egyptian empire. So I'm saying all of that, say this, When you start looking for a six-day project in some way or another, it's going to fit what you do and what your experience is. It won't be something totally foreign. There will be some kind of a link somewhere so that you can utilize what you have come up through. I say this all the time to people. Treat your jobs like they are the links in a chain. Close every link. Don't leave a job because you're mad. Don't leave a job because it's tough. You submit your plans to God and you leave when he releases you. 
And there have been some times when I wanted to leave a job and God wouldn't let me. He said, you haven't finished here yet. You have some other things to do. And so I stayed until God released me. And I, as a result, I carried with me every one of those stages and phases that I went to. And each phase was a completed phase. And even when I hauled hay, and I didn't like hauling hay. It's not a lot of fun to haul hay. But I have taken so many lessons from the hayfield into the ministry with me even today. People say, where did you get your work ethic? Simple. I got it in the hayfield. Where did you get your passion for finishing things? I got it in the hayfield. I learned in that hayfield how to do things right. I learned that if we wanted to be called back to do a job for a farmer, we couldn't cut him short. We had to do everything right, and we did. And for that reason, I was equipped to go into ministry because I learned how to finish what I started. And so God's going to use something to train you. He's going to do something to prepare you for the six-day project that you have. Now, let me show you how this works. I'm going to tell you some stories. There's a man in our church named Larry. Larry is an expert on Shelby Cobra cars, and he has been involved in the car building business for a long, long time. But he found out that there were times when his shop was going to be idle, and they needed work, but there was nobody to come along and order a custom Shelby car at the time. So you know what he did? He sat down and started thinking. He heard me teach this, and he said, I could take my shop, the one that I have right now, without buying any new equipment, and I can develop a sideline that we can give attention to when we need to, and we pull back when we don't have time to do it. He started making storm shelters. You can sell storm shelters anywhere in Oklahoma. And he jumped on board with that and added this little six-day project to his job. And it has made a huge difference for him. I got a friend named Buddy. Buddy and I were in a rock and roll band together years and years ago. Of course, Buddy had several careers. But when Buddy retired from his main gig and uh, he worked for a pipe company out in western Oklahoma, Buddy decided that he wanted to keep doing some things. And one of the things that he was really good at was building amplifiers. And so Buddy ordered all of these parts so that he could build about an amplifier a month. But he also found a side business. He found out that loads of those parts were extremely hard to get. And so every day, Buddy ships out orders of hard-to-find amplifier parts in a secondary business that he does on eBay. It's just a great six-day project. It's not a huge deal, but it's enough for him to stay busy. It's extra income now that he's retired, and he's got this amazing thing that is a beautiful idea, and it, it works because it fits his wheelhouse. So uh, our athletic director uh, that was here with us so many years at Church on the Move and Lincoln Christian School did a six-day project. It wasn't what you would think. He went to night school, and he got his master's degree. When he earned his master's degree, now his earning power goes up tremendously. 
and he has been able to continue to climb in his professional career and get some of the top jobs in the state of Oklahoma. In fact, he is the first private school administrator to be on the board of our state's athletic association. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that he had that degree. It was a six-day project. It didn't pay him anything while he was doing it. It's after he got it done. And I want to say that maybe there's something missing in your education. Maybe there are some classes that you could take. And it might be something you do during night school or a little bit extra here or there. And you apply that time to build this new thing and it gives you an increase in pay. Think about a six-day project like that. Now, take time from your personal schedule for a six-day project, not from your family schedule. When I developed my six-day projects early on, I had kids and a wife, and I had grown up without a lot of family time, and I was very much motivated not to cheat my kids. So here's the way I thought. I've got my time with my family, and I got my job, and I have my free time, some of my hobby time here. It's not a lot, but I do have some of that. I'm not going to give up time with my family, can't give up time with my job, but I can give up hobby time. And so for many years, I gave up my hobbies. I ran around pastors. I saw lots of pastors who had memberships at country clubs or they played golf a lot or they did this or did that. They had lots of extra hobbies that they did. I could not afford that. And so I, I, uh, I, I gave up my hobby time so that I could invest in a six-day project. And one of the things I've learned, you cannot have great things unless you are willing to give up some good things. And I tell young people all the time, you can't have it all. If you want something great, there will be a period, not your whole life, but there's going to be a period where you have to sacrifice. You have to give up something to get something else. I remember when I was a football player in high school, I got tired of being knocked around, and I did. I got knocked on my butt all the time on the field, and the coaches would holler at me, and I got tired of that. I thought, you know what? My dad's going to make me play football whether I want to or not. I'm out here. I'm getting tired of getting killed. And that was in a high school with 175 students. Then we moved, and we moved into a high school with 2,600 students, and I thought, I really got to do something. Fortunately, in the new high school, they had a weight program. So I got into weights, and I worked out and worked out, but I started realizing something. I work out the same as the team. I'm not gaining on them. They're gaining too, right along with me. If I want to beat them, i got to work out extra. Well, the problem was they closed down the weight room right after school, so I had to get out. They ran me out of there every afternoon. So I went home. And I started looking around the house for things that I could do, and we didn't have any weights. So I learned how to stand on my head in the hallway and do push-ups upside down. That re- was better than doing a regular push-up. When my brother would get home from school, I'd have him sit on my shoulders. I'd put my legs up in the bed, and I would do push-ups with him on my shoulders. I did hundreds of setups, not 30, 40, 100. I did hundreds of them. I kept building my core and doing setups. Then I would skip rope to build up my calves. The next fall, 
when it was time to play football. I was a transformed person. I was willing to give up something to get something better. And that's the way all of life works. This is the principle on which Jesus builds his kingdom. Listen to what he said in Mark 8, 34. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When most Christians hear that verse, they completely misunderstand it. They think that what Jesus is saying, you got to die. You got to give everything up. You can't have anything. Jesus doesn't want you to have anything. That isn't what he's saying. What Jesus is saying here is I want you to have something great. I want you to have better than what you've got now. But in order to have better than what you've got now, you're going to have to be willing to give something up. You see, we're all called to crosses. It's not just a cross that you give up uh, uh, once here or there. It's something we do continually. And all crosses are temporary. You know, when you think about Christ, he wasn't on the cross for years. He wasn't on the cross for a full day. And I'm not making light of it. Nobody ever suffered like Christ suffered when he was on the cross. But all crosses in Christ lead to a glorious, glorious resurrection. And that's a lesson I learned a long time ago. That if you give up something good, you may leave it for a while, but it will come back. And when it comes back, it's going to be glorified. You know, a few weeks after I gave my heart to Christ, I had a girlfriend, my first steady girlfriend, didn't want to break up with her. But when I would request prayer for her at church, because she was not a believer, the people there at first were kind to me, but finally one night the lady said to me, Willie, you need a girlfriend who loves God as much as you. You need to break up with that girl. And she opened the Bible and showed me 2 Corinthians 6.14. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And I started realizing I am unequally yoked. I did not want to break up with her. I was emotionally attached to her. But the more I thought about that verse, the more I realized it's the best thing both for me and for her. And I did break up with her. You know what happened is a few years later, I met the woman who would be my wife. And there's not a week that goes by that I don't pause and think about how much better suited she is for me than what the other girl would have been. And what a wonderful partner and companion she's been. And what wonderful kids she gave me. A few weeks back, I uh, came to Church on the Move, went into the key staff meeting where the lead pastor, my son Whit, was holding court with several of his guys. There were about eight or ten of them sitting around the table. And I walked in, stuck my head in the door, and they invited me in. I talked to them for a few minutes. And I looked around. And I walked out the door, and I was blown away. And I thought, you know, today they run the church, and they have taken such a load off me. And they have protected me, and they fight for me, and they give me the opportunity to do the things I really need to be doing. 
and they have kept this ministry running very smoothly. But you know what I saw? 180, 180, 180, 180, all around the table were young men and women who started in our youth ministry called 180. And that's where they all came from. And I remember back in 1995 when I gave up a lot of my time to invest in those teenagers, I thought I was saving those teenagers. I thought, you know what? I'm going to give up meetings. I'm going to give up traveling. I'm going to give up this and I'm going to give up that so that I can reach these teenagers. And you know, in 1995, I thought I was saving them, but I wasn't. They were saving me. That group of kids has become the backbone of this church. And what I gave up, I got back, but I got it back glorified. One of my great mentors, Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole, said this, and I've never forgotten it. Every death in Christ is followed by a glorious resurrection. So if you need time for your six-day project, Maybe you take it out of your personal time, not a whole 40-hour week. I'm talking about a few hours a week, and watch to see what God does to pay you back because it's when you give up something good that you wind up with something great. Thanks for listening to the Church on the Move podcast. You can stay connected with us at churchonthemove.com or by following us on Instagram. Our mission at Church on the Move is simple. We want to introduce people to the real Jesus by helping them know God, grow in freedom, discover purpose, and go make a difference in their communities. If you're in the Tulsa area, we would love to have you join us at any of our campuses this weekend. You can check out churchonthemove.com for campus locations and times. We hope to see you soon.